Universal Strictures instilled in Hemingway the notion that Paris, in particular the expatriate American community of writers, poets, and literary magazine publishers, represented the future of literature. Hemingway celebrated its spirit decades later in A Movable Feast, his sentimental recollection of his literary coming of age in the City of Light. If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, he wrote several years before his death in 1961, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. When Anderson, a successful and seasoned writer, told Hemingway, a native of Oak Park, Illinois, that Paris was where he might find his voice, Hemingway listened. Anderson gave Hemingway letters of introduction to the bookseller Sylvia Beach, the avant-garde fiction stylist Gertrude Stein, the Irish literary colossus James Joyce, and the brilliant, generous to a fault Ezra Pound. On the Monday after Thanksgiving, 1921, the 22-year-old Hemingway and his new bride, Hadley Richardson, sailed for Paris aboard the French line's Leopoldina. "'The world is a jail,' exclaimed Hadley and we're going to break it together. A few days before Christmas, the handsome couple checked into the Jacobi d'Angleterre, now the Hôtel d'Angleterre, on the Rue Jacob, which was full of interesting, eccentric Americans. It was only a brief walk from Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company bookstore, then at 12 Rue de l'Odéon. Life was opening up for the newlyweds. Ernest had a job as an overseas reporter for the Toronto Star Weekly, and Hadley had a modest income from a small trust fund. Together they had more than enough money to live comfortably in Paris then, when dinner for two cost twelve francs. Here Ernest could work, and he and Hadley could live a life more exotic and refined than any life they might have experienced back home. They could afford to dine in good restaurants, place risky bets on horse races and bicycle races, vacation on the French Riviera, and ski in the Alps of Austria and Switzerland. Best of all, they lived among a cadre of creatives, from American expatriates to already recognized masters such as Joyce and Picasso. The young Midwesterners were intoxicated by the wonders of France and its most famous city. As Hemingway biographer Michael Reynolds so eloquently put it in Hemingway, The Paris Years, Everywhere he turned there was something new to learn, and turning with him was Hadley, always close, eager to move in whatever direction his interests led. Piano concerts, gallery openings, late-night spots, drinking, and early morning breakfasts afterwards among the fresh produce at Les Halles. It was all a rush of sensations, sharp tastes down ancient streets, vintage wines, and new friends. Everywhere there were games playing, the racetrack and prize-fight games, the literary game, the newspaper game, each with its special rules and inside operators. In, among, and around them, of course, was the oldest game of all, the sex game played by Paris rules. The Hemingway's first Parisian acquaintance was Louis Galantier, an American fluent in French. Galantier, who had previously introduced Anderson as well as Sinclair Lewis to Paris, bought the couple dinner at Restaurant Michaud. Hemingway then invited Galantier back to his hotel suite for a friendly sparring match. Hemingway had brought along two pair of regulation boxing gloves, which he had used in sparring matches aboard the Leopoldina en route to Europe. 
While Hadley kept time with the stopwatch, Hemingway, ever eager to demonstrate his pugilistic talent and masculine superiority, broke Galantier's glasses. Despite this odd beginning, their friendship grew, and a few days later Galantier found the couple a small apartment in the 6th arrondissement, at 74 rue Cardinal Lemoine, a narrow street in one of Paris's oldest working-class neighborhoods. Theirs was a cold-water, fourth-floor walk-up apartment with Turkish toilets on each landing. They moved in on January 9, 1922. Despite the primitive plumbing and dark rooms, Ernest wrote friends that he and his wife were living in the best part of the Latin Quarter. For his writing, Hemingway rented a room around the corner on Rue Mouffetard, on the top floor of an old hotel where the writer Paul Verlaine had once lived. When the chamber was too cold for comfort, Hemingway repaired to a café where he nursed a café creme or rum that he described as smooth as a kitten's chin. He sharpened his pencils with a pocket knife. Using carefully selected details, he carved out a fictional retelling of his youth in the upper Michigan woods, his experiences as a cub reporter for the Kansas City Star, remembered events in Chicago, and later, often soon after he lived them, his now well-known adventures in Europe. By reading voraciously, Hemingway absorbed what amounted to the college education he never had. You saw books that you had never seen before, he wrote of Shakespeare and company. He borrowed or bought books by Russian writers, such as Ivan Turgenev and Fyodor Dostoevsky, and by French authors Stendhal and Gustave Flaubert. These masters taught the young Hemingway the difference between slick fiction and fine literature, and his tastes broadened with each literary discovery. Before Paris, Hemingway's favorite authors were O. Henry, Kipling, Twain, and Stuart Edward White. But they did not prepare him to write for the sophisticated left-bank literary world. Hemingway was surrounded by people of extraordinary talent, but he was drawn to one writer in particular. Through Shakespeare and Company's owners, Sylvia Beach and Adrienne Monnier, Hemingway met James Joyce. He admired the Irishman, read all of his books, volunteered to collect subscriptions for Ulysses, and came up with a plan to smuggle copies into the United States, where the book had been banned. In a letter to Sherwood Anderson, he declared that Joyce was the greatest writer in the world. Robert Gajasek, Professor Emeritus of English Literature at San Francisco State University, summed up Joyce's influence on Hemingway in his librette, Hemingway and Joyce, A Study in Debt and Payment. Joyce was exactly that master Hemingway needed, one who could show him multiple levels of meaning loaded upon a controlled, highly suggestive language. There was no other contemporary writer for whom Hemingway expressed such high regard. The two men occasionally went cafe-crawling together, which gave Joyce, who could barely see and frequently wore a patch over one eye, the opportunity to start fights that he would leave for Hemingway to finish. Fascinated by boxers and boxing, Hemingway kept in good form by giving lessons to Ezra Pound. Ignoring the man's status as one of the greatest poets then working in English, Hemingway wrote to Sherwood Anderson that Pound habitually leads with his chin and has the general grace of a crayfish. Between sparring sessions, Pound offered Hemingway advice on writing, and sometimes even edited Hemingway's stories, as he had done with the manuscript of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which Pound called a sprawling chaotic poem. 
Pound proved to be an insightful editor who, particularly in Hemingway's case, gave generously of his time. Like Hemingway, he had a gift for capturing fleeting moments in words. Walking out of the Paris metro one day, Pound was struck by the crowd and quickly penned a two-line poem. The apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough. Pound's crackling creativity and the assured artistry of more seasoned artists in his circle inspired Hemingway, who was at that time struggling to master the poetic form, and by his own admission, falling far short of his ambitions. The America that Gertrude Stein abandoned for Paris was Oakland, California, a city still unfairly tainted by Stein's famous but widely misunderstood remark, There is no there there. Stein was not criticizing the city, but rather lamenting in her peculiar word-repeating style the raising of her childhood home. Accompanied by her brother Leo, she moved to Paris in 1903, and with a remarkably unerring eye began to collect modern art, works by Cézanne, Renoir, Gauguin, Matisse, and paintings by her friend Picasso. She owned so many canvases, they virtually paneled the walls of the apartment where she and her brother held Saturday evening salons for artists, writers, European aristocrats, and assorted bohemians. Like the Cubist paintings she collected, Stein's writing was difficult for most people to understand. Much later, after their falling out, Hemingway parodied her repetitive style, a rose is a rose is a rose, and said, using fry cook slang for the word onion, a rose is a rose is an onion. In 1910, Alice B. Toklas moved into the Stein's apartment on the Rue de Pleurou. Three years